What's up, everybody? Lenny White here, and I want to welcome you to Season 2 of the IUE Universe Podcast. On this podcast, I, Lenny White, will invite you, the listener, to join me and my guests as we discuss music, arts, science, some amazing personal journeys, and everything in between. This podcast is independently created and listener-supported. To become a supporter, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash IUE. And that's spelled I-Y-O-U-W-E. John Schofield's guitar work has influenced jazz since the late 70s and is still going strong today. Possessor of a very distinct sound and stylish delivery, Schofield is a masterful jazz improviser whose music generally falls somewhere between post-bop, funk-edge jazz, and R&B. Born in Ohio and raised in suburban Connecticut, Schofield took up the guitar at age 11, inspired by both rock and blues players. He attended Berklee College of Music in Boston, and after a debut recording with Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker, Schofield was a member of Billy Cobham's George Duke Band for two years. In 1977, he recorded with Charles Mingus and joined the Gary Burton Quartet. He began his international career as a band leader and recording artist in 1978. From 1982 to 1985, Schofield toured and recorded with Miles Davis. His Davis stint placed him firmly in the foreground of jazz consciousness as a player and composer. Since that time, he's prominently led his own groups in the international jazz scene, recorded 30 albums as a leader, many already classics, including collaborations with contemporary favorites like Pat Metheny, Charlie Hayden, Eddie Harris, Modesky Martin and Wood, Bill Frisell, Brad Maldow, Mavis Staples, Government Mule, Jack DeJeanette, Joe Lovano, Phil Lesh, and yours truly. He's played and recorded with Tony Williams, Jim Hall, Ron Carter, Herbie Hancock, Joe Henderson, Dave Holland, Terramasa Hino, among many jazz legends. Throughout his career, Schofield has punctuated his traditional jazz offerings with funk-oriented electric music. All along, the guitarist has kept an open musical mind. Touring the world approximately 200 days per year with his own groups, he is an adjunct professor of music at New York University, a husband and a father of two. I sat down with Sko at NYU, where we are both professors, to catch up on a lot of things. It is my distinct honor and pleasure today to have one of my old friends and someone who is from this area, actually, but has gone on to win countless numbers of awards, Grammy Awards, and and all sorts of awards and anything. Mm. But we affectionately call him Sco, but this is John Schofield, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> We've been you. talking about this for a long time. Thank you so much, yeah. Right, right. So, just... To refresh people's memories and those that don't know, you are actually from 
the tri-state area. Yeah, I am. I, I, I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut, and uh, Wilton, Connecticut, right next to it, and uh, left there in 1970. But, wow. uh but yeah, no. In the '60s, I lived in Connecticut, and uh, which is is part of the tri-state area because that's yeah. Fairfield County, right near New York. Right, and and so you are one of three famous people from well, Norwalk, <laughs> Connecticut. Well, we this is great. You talked about Calvin Murphy, you know, Calvin who, Murphy, who was, that's right. Who was when when we were young in the '60s, he was a superstar. You know, yeah, he went and on. He was from Norwalk in the NBA. That's right. right. He he, he was. A, in Houston, and, and but he was from Norwalk High School, right. where he had uh, excelled, you know, and never blew everybody's mind back then in the early '60s, I guess that was. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then there's another famous Norwalkian, I guess <laughs> you would call him, and that is Horace Silver. That's right, Horace Silver, our our jazz hero, claim to fame. That's right. Uh, but he's a big, he, that ain't no claim to fame. He's, he's, no, he's, he's as he's big a, as you can get. Right, he's, he's an icon. Super important. And right, uh, he's right. from Norwalk. And I, and um, it's funny because uh, I knew people that would say, oh, I knew Horace and stuff. But, you know, he left long before I was uh, into music and everything. But I know right where he lived, right by the where they published the Norwalk Hour, or they used to the old uh, right. newspaper place. Yeah. So so now, you you went from Norwalk, and you went to Berkeley. I did. I went to Berkeley for t- for two years, nineteen seventy through seventy two. Who was there when when you were there? Um. Well, me and Joe Lovano were classmates. You know. Okay. And and he became one of my best friends right away, and. Uh, and then you know a bunch of bunch of guys. You know, uh, it was fantastic. Everybody wanted to play, and yeah. um, and Pat Metheny came up. Mm-hmm. Gary Burton started to teach there, and uh, and that's how I met Steve Swallow, the bassist, because Gary got Steve to teach. Right, right. And Gary and Swallow only lasted like a year. He wasn't cut out for teaching. But then, <laughs> uh, but we stayed. You know, we've been playing since then. And and uh, who else? Abraham Aboriel Jr., the bassist. I, I, I played with his you know, dad. You, no, Abraham, that's who I mean. Senior, right, right, sorry. Right. Senior, Junior's senior, the drummer. Junior is the drummer, right? No, no, but Senior, yeah, was the bass player who I, I played with, too. We had a top 40 band wow, wow, with a drummer wow. named Ted Siebes. Wow, <laughs> And wow. Abe sang and played. He yeah. did? Yeah, wow, yeah. Okay, we we cool. played, like, some, some gigs. They call them GB gigs up there, general business gigs. You know? <laughs> Yeah, right, but, right. But right. I was in Boston, yeah, until '74 when I moved to New York. Okay, when you moved to New York in '74, who was the first person I, you I played came with? down and, and uh, I was in Jerry Mulligan's band. Oh, okay. And uh, for a short while, and he he, uh, I met him in Boston because Alan Dawson, uh, the drum. Uh, sure. Drummer and, and instructor at Berkeley was, uh, you know, I, I knew Alan, and, and Alan played with the Dave Brubeck group at that time. Right. And Jerry was in the group. And uh, then Jerry was doing some gigs and asked Alan who he should get, and he got me. And uh, and so I was in the group, you know, for a short while. And uh, then I got a call from Jerry's manager. He said, okay, the next gig's in New York in like a month or something. Cool. And it was... Uh, at Carnegie Hall, <laughs> and it was the reunion with Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan at Carnegie Hall. So that's right when I moved to New York. 
And then you, after that, you stayed and, yeah, in New York. I stayed in New York. And right after that, Lenny, is when uh, I met Billy Cobham, or right at that time. And uh, John Abercrombie had just left or was fixing to leave Billy's band. I had met John, too. Um, and then, then Billy hired me for his band. Right. Uh, which Who was in the band then? Brecker Brothers. Oh, yeah, okay. And, okay. Uh, you know, Alex on bass and, and uh, Milcho Levyev on piano. Right, right, you know. right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that, so, so, so you know about those times, man, in yeah. New York. New York was a... Well, New York has always been the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those were different kind of times. I think so. Let's I talk so. about that for a minute. Well, it was an amazing time for the music, uh, as you know, because, you know, you played such a part in that. And, and, and when when I was going to Berkeley, I would go hear you playing. I remember hearing you with, uh, with Joe Henderson right, and right. Woody Shaw. Fantastic right. band at the jazz workshop. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and I that was yeah. I think I probably heard you more than that, but I, that one particularly stands yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we all had had uh, Red Clay, right? Which which was a big hit with the Berkeley set. We were all listening to that every day. <laughs> you know, and who is this young guy on drums? You know, it's it's deep because Lieb and Randy and uh, Grossman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all used to play together at Lieb's um, um, place on 19th Street. Mm-hmm. He had a loft. I know. Yeah. And there was uh, um, Chick and Dave Holland mm-hmm. and Lieb. They, they all lived in the same right. building. And we used to play there all the time. And so then when Red Clay happened, I know Randy had... He, he talked to me and he said, "Man, it was so great that one of us had finally gotten yeah. out and you know recorded and done that." But I had made the record with Miles before wow. that. Before that, yeah. And then it just so happens that both Lieb and Grossman wound up playing with mm-hmm. Miles too. And so here it is again. And then you wind up playing with Miles. That's too. right. But you know, Lenny, you guys were just above my group you know right. you were just had we're already on the scene so we all heard you and steve grossman and dave liebman all the time you know and yeah. and we'd go to little clubs to hear those guys play and, and dave right. had lookout farm yes right and right. and uh and randy was playing around with mike they were with horace silver right, right. and uh and, and it was a great time yeah it was a totally different different era i mean you know like i think the aesthetic has changed mm-hmm. because back then what was happening is that there was such a there was camaraderie, but it was competitive camaraderie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like everybody had to be on their toes because, man, yeah. you gotta, have you heard that band? Oh right. man, we got right. we got to be as good as that band. Mm-hmm. You know, I think yeah. so. It was a no. It was amazing because I think it was it was kind of post Coltrane, right? And and, and Miles's group had set the bar so high. In the late '60s, you know that by the '70s, uh, yeah, it, and you know the other thing was fusion was starting, so it was the beginning of fusion, right. and it was this real interesting time uh, before fusion had you know before smooth jazz or Kenny G or any of that, and it was really like the jazz guys were playing. You know? Well, yeah, that's I mean, like you know, the fact is when you talk about lifetime, 1968, mm-hmm. '69, mm-hmm. you know, with Tony. I mean, Tony took. 
uh, a traditional organ trio and mm-hmm. put it on steroids, yep. and it became, wow, that's what everybody wants to do. You, you know, know, I don't know if you remember this, but they played at Slugs. No, I, that's why I first that's saw where them. I first saw. Them. I saw them at Slugs too. It and was so loud, it was so oh, loud, man. So you know, this was when I was in high school, right? So we would take the train down, and I would get, you know, I I went to Slugs maybe five times or something for different, you know, here right. different groups. Right. And I would always, we were young, right? And I would get there really early, you know. I would be like at eight thirty, I'd be at my table. There'd right, be nobody right. there, and the band didn't start till nine thirty or right. something. Right, right. I'd have like twelve cokes before they <laughs> before they got there. But but when we heard Tony Tony Williams' Lifetime, there were like five people there. Right, and right. they totally killed it. It was unbelievable and. uh Loud as hell, but it was. I was me and my friend with the, you know, right. some no, of the no, only no, people a, there. That that when I played with Joe Henderson, um, and Woody Shaw played in Joe's band. Mm-hmm. I remember Miles coming to hear us at the East Village Inn. Wow! And it was about fifteen people there. Yeah, you know, I remember playing there like uh, on uh, New Year's Eve or whatever. And it was six people in the club. You know, you know, it was a it was a funny time. You know? Exactly, there was yeah. this all this great music, and the vibe was like energetic and everything. Yeah, but like there was nobody there. But sometimes there would be nobody in the club to hear the greats of jazz, Joe Henderson or right. or Tony Williams or whatever. Right, right. You know, and they were still the greats. We all idolized them. You know. Well, now, what? You first, you got to tell me. How you know, of course you played with Billy, so you were in that movement. You were in. That I was lucky. jazz rock. I got in there when you right. know Billy had played in the Mahavishnu Orchestra, right? And then he started his own band, and they, you know, when I joined with the Brecker Brothers, I mean, they were at the tops. Man, right. I joined in January of '75, and it was like, <clears throat> and you were in in Return to Forever at that point, and and it was those groups were like pop groups. Yeah, we were, it was we were doing big gigs. You know, exactly. It wasn't. You know, and that's why nobody was going to hear Joe Henderson and <laughs> because, stuff because right, there was right. this other movement, you know, uh, yeah, that right. was really popular with college kids, right. and it was amazing. Yeah. So Billy would play, and we were on tour for two years straight. You know, right. when did you go to play with Miles? That wasn't until '81. Uh, so I, I was with Billy '75, '76, and then I was just around New York playing different gigs and, and whatever. Did you do your own band then? Yeah, I that? did some of my own stuff. Was that when yeah. Dennis played with you? No, that was after Dennis right. was. That was '84 or something. When I was with Miles, when I no '85 right. when I met Dennis. Was Gary playing with you too? Gary Gary Granger. Granger. Yeah, yeah. When I started, that's, my that's group. how that's how I met. Right, Gary's because mm-hmm. he was in your mm-hmm. band, right? With with Dennis, yeah, yeah. No, but I was with Miles for a couple of years, and I can tell you how that band happened. But um, and I and I was making records for Gramavision, and the first one I did was with Steve Jordan and uh, and Daryl Jones, right? And, no, I, no, the first one was me playing bass. I overdubbed everything. Really? Yeah, it's called Electric Outlet. It's Steve on dr- I played. To a Lindrum, talking about Lindrum, I like basically took my home demo and went in the studio where I played guitar tracks, had a Lindrum machine, and played bass. And then had Jordan come in one day, and then had, uh, but I left my bass track on there, you know, 
And uh, but that was the first. But then anyway, I was with Miles. And Daryl Jones told me, he said he had this tape of P-Funk. He said, check this out. This is a live gig tape. So we were listening to it, and he said, yeah, you know, on this one, there's only one drummer. Because usually P-Funk has, like, two guys, but there's this new young guy who's in the band who can take the place of all the different drummers, and it was Dennis. Dennis, right. And then I started, uh, and then another name you know from back then, Mark Cohen, who became Mark Copeland. Wow. The piano player. Remember Mark Cohen when he played alto? And right. Stuff? Yeah, right. right. Wow. You remember him? Anyway, I was I, I knew Mark, and Mark told me, he said, well, I know a great bass player from D.C. area. who was Gary, who was actually from Baltimore. Right, right. And uh, so I got Gary in my band, and Gary said, well, you got to hire you got my me. friend. You gotta get, yeah, you got yeah, to get, get this guy. And he was the drummer who, uh, who uh, was on the tape of P-Funk. Right. And so I started my group then, yeah. Ah, okay. That's what, that's that's. You know, there was there were these bass and drum tandems because Herbie was in um, San Francisco and we played a late night thing or whatever. And he said, "Man, you know," and, and Paul Jackson, yep, who played with me in Aztec with in Azteca. Oh wow! I did. Paul I was know. playing with Herbie. Yeah. And Herbie said, "Man, I need a drummer." I said, "You got Paul Jackson playing bass." You got to call Mike Clark. They're like, wow. you know, or they're together. So you told that. Herbie about that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you had heard Mike in San Francisco or something? Man, I've known Mike forever mm-hmm. because, like, yeah, we met when I was in Azteca. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in I San forgot Francisco. you were in Azteca. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was, was a while back. Yeah. It was pretty deep. Pretty deep. Yeah. Um, but so now the Miles experience. Mm hmm. The one thing that I remember really great is Decoy. Mm-hmm. That was a, a, a big record for me, uh, and uh, it was great to be on that with Miles. And I had played on uh, Star People before right. that. And then uh, then he did, did uh, Decoy, and, uh, you know, it just came out right. But that, that sound, I mean, you mm-hmm. have, you have, what's, what's great, for you, John, is that you know young kids today they have generic sounds, mm-hmm. and you have a sound that is all your own. Mm. And what I liked is that see how that music, jazz rock music, how it really for me uh, became something great is because it was inclusive of every kind of... It wasn't about sound. It was about energy. Mm. Mm-hmm. That was different. See, like now today, music is about sounds, but jazz rock was about energy. Mm-hmm. And you brought a certain energy to all of the things that you did because mm. of your sound. Mm-hmm. And your sound with Miles is different than anybody else that played guitar mm-hmm. with Miles. Yeah, I don't know. You know, thank you. Um, you know, you just... Somebody said you get the sound you hear, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> or you're going for what you... You know, it's never quite exactly what you want. You know, it's always a work in progress. Of course. But, uh, but you know, I think it is in the fingers. You know, like we all have our own sound, you know. But see, what, yeah, what I've liked is that you took your sound 
and included it with Miles. Mm-hmm. And then when you left Miles, you still had your sound. Mm-hmm. And you've done country albums. Mm-hmm. You've done all sorts of different kind mm-hmm. of albums. And it's you. So everybody knows yeah. that it's you. Right. I mean, yeah. so, so, so. It's your, all I can do. But that, I'm stuck sound, with my sound. <laughs> but your sound exemplifies what it is that you do in any kind of music that mm-hmm. you play. Well, I think that's the only way to do it. You know, I mean, uh, I've never been a jack of all trades. You know, I've always wanted to be a stylist, like Miles was, right. you know, and and the greats of jazz, you know, that had a unique sound and a, a, a personality in their music. And uh, so that's what I've worked on, and, and you know, and because we're this, you and I both are this certain age, we've all heard a lot of different kind of music exactly. and been influenced by all kinds of stuff. That's part of the, the uh, you know, legacy of the fusion era was, was that we all listened to all this cool stuff because there was all this great pop music in the 70s that affected us, you know, and in the 60s and That's soul exactly music right. and everything. You know, you couldn't deny that stuff. It was so happening. And rock and roll and just the guitar and what Hendrix and Jeff Beck did with the guitar. But they all had had sounds, and that's, you know, uh, it's really kind of a jazz tradition. You know? But that's what I think is different today. It's been now, <clears throat> I don't know, there's this kind of music and that kind of music. Mm-hmm. But back when we were doing what we were doing, mm-hmm. creating what we were creating, yes, there were all these different kinds of music, but what we did is include mm-hmm. all of those things. Mm-hmm. Now it's like... Well, there's jazz. I mean, I think that it's all about attitude. I think the attitude is what makes, what dates music, mm. is somebody's attitude about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I recently listened to an uh, old Miles interview. Mm-hmm. And someone asked him about his style. He said, well, in order to play like I play, you have to have listened to Ravel, mm-hmm. Stravinsky, you know, mm-hmm. he listened to all these different oh, yeah. musical things. Mm-hmm. I remember going over to his house and he played me a record of a singer, a Spanish singer mm. that he listened to before he did Sketches of Spain. Wow, that influenced him. Yeah. And I heard all that. Mm-hmm. You could hear all the in little inflections and mm-hmm. everything. And so, you know, what happens today is a lot of young musicians listen to other young musicians trying to emulate mm-hmm. or, or a particular style. They don't, they're not inclusive of all the other kinds yeah, they of don't, things. They don't go to where they could to get away from their instrument and a lot of times get away from jazz. And that's, that's right. what Miles was um, interested in, so much stuff. And he was so worldly. You know what I mean? Right. He right. he was into expanding his right. his thing, and uh, it was it was. So well, now let me ask you a question. We both are here teaching mm-hmm. at NYU, mm-hmm. talking about what we just talked about. How do you think we can get our students to think the way that we thought? To well, make music, and not yeah. listen, not to read music, because see, everybody's been taught how how everybody's taught music. They're taught music by putting a 
a, a page of music in front mm-hmm. of them and say, this is the way you play this. Mm-hmm. But not, they've not been taught how to create mm. music. Yeah. Meaning that there's melody, harmony, and rhythm. Mm-hmm. That's what you have. Now let's create some music with that, as opposed to reading mm-hmm. music from a page. Yeah. How do you think we can get that to happen? Yeah, I uh, I just think we can impart our experience to them, you know. We can talk about what it is that got us going. And, and, and in my class and stuff, I will say a few things that Miles said to me, you know, and and – and it's always simple stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. Because he could he could break it down. You know, he was a genius, and and uh, I mean, one thing he said that I think is so amazing because anybody can understand it, but it's deeper than it sounds. He would say, "Play the better notes." You know, in other words, play the good stuff. Don't play. <laughs> he right. play the better notes, which means he put his own standard on the music, which was really high. And he was hard on himself, too, right. as right. we know. And so he said, you know, basically, just play the play the good stuff. You know, don't play any bullshit. You know, make yourself not do that. And that's why his stuff sounded so fresh all the time. Right. And I think that there's the tendency for young musicians just to fill the space. Oh, that as is. As opposed a, to yeah. thinking about yeah. what to fill the space with. You know, when you start your solo, your solo starts with silence. Mm. How you break that silence should be something that you think about mm-hmm. as opposed to just playing something. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's what we have to show them is how to sound like an artist, you know, right away. You know, right. no bullshit. Don't play anything unless you mean it. And and this whole deal of playing a bunch of stuff and everything Everybody wants to, that's how you learn how to play music, yeah. is you, you learn as much stuff as you can. But then, being an artist is editing yourself and making it sound somewhat profound, if possible, you know. Right. <laughs> and and that's that's what we have to, to yeah. show them, you know. Talk about some of the different eclectic musical experiences that you've had. Mm-hmm. Because you've done that. You've done a lot of different kinds of things, mm-hmm. John. It's not like you're a jazz mm-hmm guitar play and you play jazz mm-hmm. and that's what it is well i think you know one thing is is just being a guitar player um opens you up to so much other stuff because you know jazz, jazz guitar is not guitar is not the number one jazz instrument you know and and the tradition of jazz it's saxophone and trumpet you know and piano that, that really were yeah. unbelievable you know and and in a way i'm happy about that because when I started off on guitar, everybody, there was this whole world of music in, in the 60s that that was um, bluegrass guitar, you know, country stuff. I mean, an ama- amazing stuff going on with old guys, you know, like Doc Watson and stuff. There was a folk music scene, you know, that was how I got into it. That was popular on the radio. Then there was soul music. There was the soul music explosion in the 60s. Yes, sir. And, and all the saxophone. Motown. Motown was, and this stuff was pop. It was everywhere. Right. So, if, you know, when we had little bands and stuff, that's what we played. And, uh, and, and that was guitar music. And then there was blues. I, I got into blues because there was, you know, here in New York, there was the Fillmore East, right? Yeah. And, and and the Cafe Gogo on Bleecker Street. And I would go here 
because I was into guitar, I would hear blues guitar players. That and and that was in a way um, a high point for the blues scene because this was when the hippies found out about blues, you know, and it was a great time. So I would I heard all that, and then Indian music was was a thing with with string players. You know, we would listen to Ravi Shankar and and uh, and that whole you know that was actually popular. Laura Jones's dad. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, who, who were your biggest guitar influences? Well, first it was blues, man. I, you know, talk about a sound on a guitar. That's right. what I wanted to do was to try and get some sort of presence like B.B. King, you know, because I used to go hear B.B. a lot, and I would go down to the Cafe Go-Go. And, and, and uh, so the blues guys were the first thing for me this is when i was like 14 13 right um i was a, a obnoxious blues snob <laughs> for about a year you know it's like oh you kids you kids like the beatles well listen to this you know right. and, <laughs> but um and then i got into jazz and and i went there was a store in westport connecticut where this woman ran the jazz department in a department store and she was really nice and she heard that i played guitar and she's turned me on to some records and it was Wes Montgomery live at live at the half note or yeah at the half note that was his his uh uh like new record whatever mm -hmm. year that was 65 you know <clears throat> and uh and Jim Hall yeah I love Jim's playing uh, he, he had a different approach you know and uh and Pat Martino sure. killed me man I couldn't believe how strong he was you know it's this and then George Benson. Of course. And George was, and still is to me, sort of uh, uh, the most fluid and swinging guitar player. You ever played with him? I know George. I never played with him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to play with him. He's too good. He's too good. And, uh, you know, those were the main guys for me. But I also had a Django Reinhardt record early sure, on sure. that I really liked. But got, my dad got it for me when I was 12, you know. Do you have a favorite record of yours that you've done? Um, well, you know, I, 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 people say certain records. You know, the, the record um, that I did with Dennis and Gary called Blue Matter. Yeah, that came out nice because we had some different kind of grooves on there, and some of my compositions I like on that one. Um, there's a live record I made with Bill Stewart and Steve Swallow called "En Route," mm -hmm. and I think that was you know jazz is always best I guess live you know, and and we got yeah. some good stuff when we were like in the you know after third set or whatever you know, and uh, and the record that's that's been popular is a, called a go-go with me and uh Mineski Martin and Wood. Mm -hmm. And uh that was a good thing at the end of the 90s. But you know what? I think they're all uh all good, but they could all be better. Your body uh, of work. That's <laughs> my body of work. Yeah, man. no, I understand. You, you know, know, I don't go back and listen that much. Right. Well, I understand, but just for me, I don't have a a, a favor mm -hmm. of anything that I've done. But mm -hmm. I do very much enjoy, and I go back and listen all the time, of you, me, Chick, 
Wow. And Victor and Bailey. Victor Bailey. Yes. Uh, oh, R.I.P. Rest in peace, Victor. That was great. Lenny, you invited me to that record, and, yeah. and uh, that came out so well, man. Yeah, no, I, I had a great time doing and that. And what a band. My yeah, God. Yeah, it was really good. Trick Korea. That's one of the few times I got to play with the Trick and with you. It was yeah, wonderful. It was, it was pretty good, man, you know. Well, listen, man, it's been really great to just sit down and talk with friends. Yeah. You know, like... I think what I try to do sometimes with these uh, podcasts, a lot of these people that I ask to do it are my friends. And basically, I don't have any preconceived idea of what I'm yeah. going to talk about. I just sit down yeah. and talk with them. And the fact that we've had history mm-hmm. really helps, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not, not to say that much, but we are part of this history yeah. of this music. No, that's you true. Know? And that's, you know, lucky enough to be around this however many years. And, and uh, there's, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this because I know the guys that, that you know and have played with, most yeah. of them, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's nothing like when, when people talk about it that have a history and roots together and can common experiences and all. You know, and I got to tell you, man, one of the great times I played with you was with you and the Jamaica Boys and Michael <laughs> Urbaniak. And you we know, played. He's in town. I'm, he doing is? A, I'm doing a project with him oh, no as kidding. we speak. Wow. Uh, tonight I'll, I'll get with him again. Oh, yeah. man, well, give him my best. Yeah. Because yeah, I haven't seen him since then. But Michael had these gigs at the bottom line. And a bunch right. of times he used me along with you guys. Right. With yeah. Bernard and Marcus Miller, yeah. and let me tell you, that, I, that really, uh, I, I loved that rhythm section so much because I had heard all you guys, right. but to be there in the middle of it, that was great. Yeah, we had fun. I mean, it's always great to have fun, and, and this is what I talk about with my students. John, here's the big point: the highest dynamic that we can have as humans, mm-hmm. and this supersedes. And we can debate about it. It supersedes love because without this, it's trust. Hmm. When you have trust, you have love, you have all of those things. Mm -hmm. The highest dynamic we can have as musicians is trust. Mm -hmm. When we trust each other, magic happens. And speaking of that, with Marcus and Bernard, Mm -hmm. we had a trust as a rhythm mm-hmm. section, we could do it whatever we wanted. And mm-hmm. so we made a safe space for anybody mm-hmm. that played with us mm-hmm. and played on top of that. So that's what it is. <laughs> it's about <laughs> musical trust. I think it is about trust. I mean, there's nothing like like that feeling when, when it's all cool. Yes, and sir. then you can really go places because nobody's worried, you know. That's and right. everybody's relaxed. Mm-hmm. I mean, jazz is, is good when it's relaxed, period. That's right. You know. And and the problem is that it's the most important thing in people's lives. So they get, you know, they want it to work more than anything. Right. Of course, it works the best when you don't give a shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so such is life, right? Well, John, it's been great. Now, I know that you have to go and record your ensemble. Yeah, that's right. We're going to. And, you know, again, mm-hmm. man, it's been special to talk with you for uh, a few minutes, and just relive some of your history, some of my history, and some of the history we've had together. Mm-hmm. 
Ladies and gentlemen, John Schofield. Thank you, Lenny. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Lenny White here again, and thanks for listening. We love bringing you great podcast interviews with music legends like Ron Carter, Mike Clark, and Marcus Miller, and hope to keep making great content. Please consider supporting the production of the IUE Universe podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at iue.com, and that's spelled I-Y-O-U-W-E-E dot com. See you next time.